Jeff Bardos, the Republican candidate for lieutenant governor running with Scott Wagner, took some time off the campaign trail to chat with me. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, President and CEO of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Uh, I am in southeastern Pennsylvania today uh, with Jeff Bartos, uh, Lieutenant Governor candidate uh, running with uh, Scott Wagner for governor, the Wagner-Bartos team. Uh, Jeff, uh, thanks for joining me on Brews and Views and taking a break from uh, campaigning to talk about uh, your campaign. Well, Matt, thank you. It's always great to see you. I really appreciate you taking the time and this will be a lot of fun, so thanks oh, you, for having me. You bet. Well, w- the first thing is that we want to get to know uh, Jeff Bartos, uh, you know, little Jeff Bartos, <laughs> kind of, you know, where you grew up, uh, you know, your family, influences, and then, of course, we'll get into the, the political uh, uh, um, campaign or marathon that you're running in right now. And marathons, I provoke, because <laughs> along the way, I'm sure we'll talk about some of the endurance races I've done and some other things. So, yeah. Very cool. So, so, so where'd you grow up? Are, are you uh, from the, the southeast here in Pennsylvania? So I grew up in Reading. Uh-huh. Uh, my father and mother, well, my mother was born in Ohio, but grew up in Reading. My father, born and raised in Reading. And my grandmother, uh, Eva, moved to Reading in 1918. Uh, when she was five okay. and, and died in Reading in 2016 at the ripe young age of 103 and a half. Oh so my goodness. My family has uh, very, very deep roots in Berks County and in Reading. And so I was born and raised there and lived there till, uh, till I got married okay. uh, in, in when I was 24. Okay. So you uh, went to uh, elementary, high school uh, in, in Reading, uh, family, uh, you have brothers and sisters as so well? Elementary school, all the way through junior high. And then actually my parents sent me to school uh, in Lancaster for eighth grade through uh, senior year in high school. So I graduated actually from a, a Lancaster Country Day School. Okay. Uh, and so in Lancaster. And my brother uh, also went to Lancaster Country Day. He lives in Lancaster today. So my brother and his wife and their two children live in Lancaster County, uh, and we see them often. And our daughter, I mean, the ties to the area are strong, uh, both in Berks and in Lancaster. Our daughter is starting college at Franklin and Marshall in two weeks. Okay. So, uh, so you'd be spending plenty of time in uh, central Pennsylvania again? Not only time, but plenty of money <laughs> in central Pennsylvania. So, yeah. Indeed. So uh, where'd you end up uh, going off to college? Well, so great childhood in Reading. Uh, loved uh, just so fortunate to live in a great place. And my father was a podiatrist and uh-huh. gave us a very good life, provided a very nice life to my brother and to me. And uh, we had a great education, great friends, and that gave me the opportunity to study hard and go off to Emory University in Atlanta. Uh-huh. Uh, so studied there for four years, worked really hard. And the bug in politics, I mean, I, I've always been interested uh, in politics. Uh, and you can see it even growing up. I ran for Seventh grade president lost. Uh, I'll never forgive the woman who won. Uh, so we'll we'll see her somewhere along the way. But uh, so lost that race. Well, but you'd like to have you know lieutenant governor won, right? Yes. Uh, uh, to say ah yeah seventh yes. grade seventh grade president. But that still sticks in my craw a little. Uh, but then active in student council in high school, in college, active uh, both in some some interfraternity council governance and things like that. And then when I was a junior, I ran for. Uh, student body vice president mm-hmm. and actually formed a ticket uh, with the president who was a good friend of mine and we had done what had never been done before in college uh, which is we formed a ticket early on and we ran together in that race and won our junior year and then had that role for all of our kind junior of, year. Kind most of sounds familiar uh, yeah. 
Yeah, it was a, there was a, there was definitely a similarity to what Scott and I ended up doing oh so many years later. But yeah, that was an unbelievable experience to be able to do that in college because Emory's a big university and you are the student government vice president for the whole university, not just the college. Mm -hmm. And so we had, I, I want to say maybe 15,000 students between all the professional schools in the college and all the issues that come before. And even then, I mean, this was right in, this is 93 into 94. This is when speech codes were coming into play on college mm -hmm. campuses. And I took a real active role as the head of the student senate to try to get rid of Emory's speech code, uh, which was basically said, you can't say things that make people feel uncomfortable. You can't say things that might be offensive. And these are real precursors. This was the dawning of the age of political correctness. Yeah. And so yeah. I took a, a firm stance, was able to pass a resolution through the through the Senate, in uh, the, the student Senate, went on to the faculty Senate, which approved it, and then there was a, a, a removal or a, a dissolution of the, the speech code uh, back when it happened right after I graduated from Emory. Uh, I'm sure it came back. I never yeah. checked to see if it, if it came <laughs> back, but in the era of political correctness and what has happened on college campuses, I'm virtually certain that that well, probably a much and, stronger version came yeah, back. Yeah, and that, that certainly is going on today. I know that there are organizations uh, like Foundation for Individual yeah. Rights in Education, uh, located in Philadelphia, uh, fighting for students' rights, uh, First Amendment rights, which is really, uh, you know, the, the, the irony, I guess, of uh, colleges limiting, uh, uh, you yeah. know, speech. Uh, isn't this where we're supposed to have these discussions, not squelch them? It's really a shame. I mean, I got a taste of it as the student government vice president. I mean, there were protests outside my dorm, and there were people who had real strong feelings about, I mean, I have op-eds that I saved from the time where the, <laughs> the head of this organization or that organization was writing in, and I had to write counter uh, op-eds. And so it was an amazing hmm. experience. Uh, little did I know, you know, 20-some-odd <laughs> years later, 25 years later, that I'd be in the middle of a statewide campaign for lieutenant governor. But it really did sort of prepare me for uh, what leadership looked like and the making hard decisions and also sticking to your guns. It would have been very easy to not fight sure. for those First Amendment rights. And it's something that right after graduating from Emory, I went to law school at the University of Virginia, which was a totally different culture. Hmm. The law school at Virginia had a very collegial culture. You could debate like crazy. You could fight uh, with facts on your side. Yeah. You could fight with facts, not with emotions. And you'd win or you'd lose uh, those arguments, but then you'd all, the culture of the school was very much you had to be uh, collegial. It, it facilitated uh, that uh, um, civil engagement, if you will. So let me go back. Uh, were your parents uh, politically, I mean, was your childhood like, you know, Democrats, uh, bad, Republicans, good, you know? Any, no. No political uh, involvement there? So my grandfather was the president of the Reading School Board, Emil Bartos, back in the 50s, I believe. Don't, okay. quote, don't quote me on that, but I believe it was the 1950s. Okay. I have a picture of my grandfather in a, in the, in a Reading School uh, and his gavel from when he was president mm. of the school board. Uh, I keep that as uh, keepsakes in my own office. But he was at very active in politics, helped get Congressman Gus Yatron started in politics and helped get Gus elected. So now my grandfather was an active Democrat. Uh, my father would have been a Democrat, uh, voted for Carter, I know, voted for Carter, I believe, in 1980. Uh -huh. uh, I know my mom voted for John Anderson in 1980 because <laughs> I was engaged. I was a third grader, okay. but I remember Weekly Reader, and you had to vote, and I remember voting for John Anderson in the okay. Weekly Reader poll in 1980 <laughs> um, because my mom voted for John Anderson. Mm -hmm. And 
Who is the, the libertarian uh, candidate? No, no. He was an independent. Okay, independent. He was an All independent right. candidate. Um, he was the third party. It was kind of the first time a third party okay. candidate was getting real attention, as I recall. I mean, there okay. were, I mean, you could go back to George Wallace sure, in the 60s. Sure. But, uh, you know, really for me as a third grader, I thought, well, this was. Uh, but when I remember, vividly remember going to the Coomer Elementary uh, Library on the black and white TV watching President Reagan's inaugural in 1981. And, uh, so my parents, we definitely talked politics. Uh-huh. It was something that was around the table, but it was never, this is good and this is bad and that party's evil and this party's great. Yeah. And I think, I mean, Matt, we know each other a little yeah. now. You've gotten to know I'm my style and sort of the, the way I see the world is very much based on mutual respect and collegiality and uh, civility. Yeah, and that's been some of the, part of the frustrating thing is that uh, the approach that's being taken by uh, far too many is is that uh, you're evil, not just wrong, but you're evil, and therefore need to be shut down. And I think that's where you see some of these speech codes at universities is that um, they, they say people are particularly evil, not just wrong, and so therefore shouldn't be heard. And I think that that's very – I mean, I think both sides do this. Both sides uh, will, will view the other side as being evil, so therefore not worthy of being heard. And we need to get back to where, look, uh, point, all points of view are valid. Um, I may think they're wrong, but they have every uh, right uh, and reason to be heard, and then let's debate them. And I think that that's what's preserved our country and why we don't have, you know, bloody revolutions when power changes. Um, but uh, it, it seems that we've we've lost a lot of that in today's discourse. But so at home, this was it was kind of uh, um, you didn't have this this uh, tribalism, I think, that we see today. Uh, when did you say, you know what, uh, my dad was a Democrat, but uh, I'm a Republican. I you know, at what point did you come out, I guess? <laughs> so I, to your parents, I registered as a Democrat when I could register to vote at age 18. Uh, I registered right away. Uh, and then you could, I think, so that would have been uh, 1990, so not a presidential year, mm-hmm. but voted in the congressional races and voted, uh, I remember voting in 92, of course, for president. I voted absentee uh, in 92 for president. I believe Arlen Specter was on the ballot that year as well. I believe okay. he was. Okay. Uh, and so I remember voting for uh, Senator Specter uh, as well uh, in 92. And then um, we had a special election in 93, wasn't it, with uh, Senator, with, uh, who was it? It was uh, Harris Wofford. Okay. Right, wasn't it Harris Wofford and I'm Dick Thornburg? Sure. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think sure, it yeah. was. So, and I remember Rick Santorum's election in 94, okay. all of which I did absentee ballot back okay. from down in college, but it was really important for me to vote. Um, it's something I took seriously. And so I changed my registration to Republican. I'd have to check this, but I believe it was in the fall of 1993. Uh-huh. I believe it was in the fall and of wh- 1993. why that? Why did you say, you know what, I'm a Republican. My, I've, I've grown up in a more Democratic household, but... Uh, I had started, so I read The Fountainhead. Okay. And then I read Atlas Shrugged. Okay. And I started to take some more political philosophy classes in college and started to work with some professors who had real keen insight into, one of whom was a real specialty in American radicalism. Uh, Mm. And so he, but he was very conservative. And he, so he taught American radicalism from the perspective of where the where the far left was, where it grew to, and then almost as he used to say in class, uh, he would say, uh, "Maybe I should be teaching in the history department, not the political <laughs> science department, because American radicalism isn't quite what it was." This is 1992, 1993, uh-huh. uh, and so I had great professors at Emory who opened my mind, not with an agenda, 
I mean, we're talking about the academy here, sure. right? The, 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 the bias is still to the left, but I had great professors who put me in touch with great authors and great readings and great philosophers. And ultimately, I reached a place where Atlas Shrugged, I was one of those guys, uh, one of those people who, who underlined passages in Atlas Shrugged. And, and yes, Ayn Rand <laughs> went on too long. And yes, there were passages that were way too long, but dog-eared that book and, and read it uh, with, with real reckless abandon. And I think that, that started, but the Fountainhead, the combination of the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, and then some of the other uh, philosophy that I was reading, or the philosophers I was reading, that really changed my worldview and got me thinking about self-reliance and about the importance of of uh, taking ownership of your own uh, your own your own life mm-hmm. and not relying on some big government that would uh, take care of you and and take care of all your needs and so so you go to Emory uh, then to Virginia for law school uh, what what next are you thinking I'm going to go into the corporate world or I'm going to be you know a district attorney I'll run for what 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 are your th- what's your thinking so I fell in love in law school not with a lawyer uh, my <laughs> wife Cheryl we're married now almost 21 years uh, she's from Allentown uh-huh. and so I, I fell in love with a, a Pennsylvania girl she's a she's a speech language pathologist uh-huh. so uh, she's a great in education she was getting her master's in education and we started dating we got engaged uh, my third year in law school she had graduated from her master's program already and was living in Philadelphia and she made it very clear that we were going to be living close to our parents, which really were her parents. Yeah. Um, I would have lived probably anywhere. Uh, California looked pretty nice. Uh, Florida looked nice. Texas <laughs> looked nice. Uh, New York looked great. Washington, D.C. looked great. But we moved to Philadelphia after I graduated, studied for the bar, and I joined a very large law firm okay. in Philadelphia. And practiced what kind of law? Corporate. Okay. So I practiced corporate law, and then after a year, went to had, I had one of the best jobs you could ever have as a young lawyer. I clerked for a federal judge for a year up in Scranton. And that was an amazing experience. And I came back to Philadelphia uh, after that one-year clerkship and actually switched to litigation. So I then became a litigator. All right. And so where does the political bug come back after uh, you know, winning uh, down at uh, Emory? Uh, when do you say, you know what, I think I can, I can do that uh, and run for public office again? Well, that, there's many years between that. I mean, we moved back to Philadelphia in the f- late summer, early fall of, of 1999. Uh, we, Cheryl, uh, we had our first child in August of 2000. And all the while, I'm just working, right? Uh-huh. I'm mean, doing what you do as a young lawyer. You pay off your debts. You try to save some money. You're starting a family, uh, taking care of my family, uh, and raising this newborn. Uh, 9-11 happens. Between, uh, after a couple of years in a new law firm in Philadelphia, I had this amazing opportunity to start. Uh, at the time, was a big home builder, but not the home building industry hadn't gotten quite the attention it got later on in the 2000s. Uh, a company called Toll Brothers, mm-hmm. which is the nation's leading luxury home builder, fantastic company founded right here in, in southeastern Pennsylvania. And so I went in-house in the legal department mm-hmm. at Toll. Uh, and Bob Toll is very active politically, but on the left. And his brother Bruce is very active politically, more center-right. Mm-hmm. And so at the company, it rekindled just an interest because politicians were coming through and you have to work with local governments to get sure. your projects approved and start to see how the political process works at the local level, the state level with DEP, uh, the federal level with the Army Corps of Engineers. And so that kind of, for me, I guess, was the, was the awakening uh, of, a, of an interest in politics and started to give to candidates 
But I mean, Matt, we're talking about fifty dollars, a hundred dollars. Like, sure. you know, that was a lot of money in for me. It's still a lot of money uh, when you give a hundred dollars to a candidate uh, for a young lawyer in the early two thousands, uh, raising a family. That was that was meaningful for us. And so, but we started donating. Um, Barack Obama gets elected in. I fast forwarded now a lot, yeah. but Barack Obama gets elected in two thousand and eight, and I am despondent. And uh, I think I remember saying to some of my friends at the time, I can't think of a single elected official on the national level that I admire or I'm proud of. And that's no disrespect to President Obama. I just thought his policies were... Sure. Obviously, he's an admirable... His story is amazing. Right, right. But I don't, I don't agree with him on mm-hmm. most issues. Um, and so at the time, I was just despondent about the state of our national Yeah, where affairs. his policy agenda would take us. I, I, I get that. Yeah, Europe. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, sure. I just felt like we were we were uh, to, to, to borrow a phrase from uh, Frederick Hayek, right? We were uh, on the road to serfdom, yeah. and I didn't feel very good about where things were. And obviously, I'm in the home building business, and so we have a real estate crash going on at the mm-hmm. same time. Right. And 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 and, um, but then Pat Toomey emerged on the scene. Now he had obviously run before, and but I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to that Senate race um, in 2004. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he lost in the primary. Mm-hmm. But when Pat Toomey emerged on the scene in 2010, or re-emerged, I should say, right. uh, I really started to follow what he was doing. And that keen focus on free market capitalism, that keen focus on the power of what a job can do for a person or for a family or for a community, uh, focusing on on how to how people can run their own lives as opposed to letting government policy pick winners and losers. I mean, he really... He spoke to me as a business leader because mm-hmm. at that time, between 2005 and 2008-9, I had moved from the legal side of the business to the to the home building side of the business. He spoke to me as a businessman, as a business leader, but also as someone who loves policy and who loves political philosophy. I just thought Pat, and continue to think Pat is is a brilliant political thinker. He's a brilliant uh, economic thinker, and someone I I really admire. And so when he emerged on the scene. Uh, for me, I thought, okay, I want to re-engage in politics. This is someone not only I want to help, uh, but someone I want to follow and want to learn from. And so uh, he's really, he doesn't like when I say this because he <laughs> he's, so, he's so modest about this, but he, he really is the reason that I, I, I re-engaged in politics after some, some years off. Well, and of course, uh, you originally jumped into the U.S. Senate race to take on uh, Bob Casey. Had you thought about running before that, uh, seriously considered running for any other public office, or was the U.S. Senate uh, really the first uh, time you really put your feet into that pool? I started thinking in 2013 okay. that, that if we were going to beat Bob Casey, meaning the Republicans were going to beat Bob Casey in Pennsylvania, and obviously I had no idea who was going to run for president or who was going <laughs> to win for the presidency. I, I'm not. If I if I could predict the future like that, I'd That's be working. Right. I'd be working in investments. Um, but the uh, I started to think about we need to beat Senator Casey with a younger candidate, someone who comes with a real philosophical, conservative philosophical bent, can really articulate the issues and. And is respectful. I think like another know, Pat Toomey. Yeah, maybe, maybe yeah, something, maybe something like that. Perhaps as my role model, maybe uh-huh. I was uh, I was following uh, Senator Toomey's footsteps, at, or trying to yeah. follow his footsteps. And so I started thinking about it in 2013, but not like seriously. Just mm-hmm. started looking at it, tried to understand what would happen. Um, people got 
it, the word got out a little that I was looking at this, and in 2000 and late 2015, uh, I had some local leaders in the political uh, Republican Party talk to me about running for Congress, perhaps in Congressman Fitzpatrick's district, perhaps uh, Congressman Pitts was retiring in the, the, the old 16th, mm-hmm. uh, the Lancaster-Chester County district. Uh, would I th- consider running for one of those open seats? And I, I thought about it for a brief period of time, mm-hmm. a very brief period of time. And ultimately, I met Lloyd Smucker. I met Brian Fitzpatrick. I, I thought they'd be outstanding congressmen, which they are. And, uh, and I, I didn't need to throw my, uh, throw my hat in the ring, so to speak. And so, but when 2016 happened, uh-huh. um, I had my eye on the Casey race that whole year, but spent most of my time if I was doing anything politically that year, I was helping Pat Toomey, either helping him raise money, getting the word out, um, being a volunteer for his campaign. I had no formal role. I was just a volunteer, um, but helped him raise some, some resources along the way. And right after the senator was reelected in November of 2016, then I got serious thinking about the U.S. Senate uh, campaign and started asking around about how you Look, how do you build this business? Because mm-hmm. let's call it what it is. It's it's a startup business. Sure. sure. So so uh, you were one of the first to jump into that, right? Uh, Sec- uh, third. Uh, third. I was third. Okay. Uh, and uh, you did that fairly early on um, and um, started raising money. Uh, you seem to be doing pretty well uh, raising funds for that race. Yeah. I. So when, when Senator Casey, so the decision point for me, there's always a decision point. I mean, along the spectrum, there's always a point where you know you're going to do it. When Senator Casey voted, refused to allow cloture on the resolution of disapproval on the Iran nuclear deal. Mm-hmm. So not to be wonky, I apologize, but your listeners, your <laughs> listeners are policy folks. Uh, when the senator wouldn't even allow a vote on the floor of the Senate, up or down, on the resolution of disapproval for, for President Obama's, uh, I think, disastrous, I agree with the president, mm-hmm. President Trump, disastrous in Iran nuclear deal. When he didn't allow that to happen, I knew he had made a huge mistake. Mm. And I knew there was an opening uh, for someone who cares about the U.S.-Israel relationship, who cares about foreign policy, and who could raise money from a national audience who was furious with the Democrats who turned their back on our security and the security of the state of Israel. And so there are no, Senator Booker did it, uh, Senator Casey did it. Um, Senator Coons did it as well, but I think, you know, he's now, uh, Chris is really, um, I give Chris a lot of credit because he's, he's walked against the orthodoxy of the left on, mm-hmm. on issues relating mm-hmm. to, I mean, he's a very thoughtful leader on, on foreign policy issues. I don't always agree with him, but I, I give him credit for being a thoughtful leader. He's mm-hmm. a very bright man. Um, but Booker, Casey, and others, they really, they took all this money over the years from, from people who support the U.S.-Israel relationship, and then they on the most important issue ever facing the, 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 that relationship, they, uh, they went with President Obama mm. because they were afraid of being primaried mm. the next time they were up for re-election. <laughs> That's all it was. Yeah, it was right. an act of pure political cowardice. Right. I knew I was going to run at that moment, okay. and it was a question of putting the team together. And so I, I had spent some time talking to folks about how do you raise money and what's the, what does good look like? Mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. How do you do this? Right. And so, yes, that first quarter that I was a candidate from April 24th, of 2017, when we launched the campaign to June 30th, we, uh, I believe we raised right about a million one that quarter, which was 
which is a pretty good quarter. And so uh, at what point um, did you start thinking, you know what, um, I think I can make a bigger difference in running for lieutenant governor? Um, obviously a different stage um, in that um, you're looking at state policy, state politics. Um, I guess same stage in that you're still running across Pennsylvania. Yeah. <laughs> so you're going to be uh, uh, driving the same roads. And, and uh, um, but what, 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 how did you make that decision to pivot from U.S. Senate to uh, lieutenant governor? So Scott Wagner, who you, you know, Scott. Yes. Um, Scott said to me, he, Scott's a real visionary. I mean, I, he really has, it's not clairvoyance. I don't give him too much credit, but he, he really has a vision and a wide view of the future and how, different folks can play can work together to, mm -hmm. to make that future happen and scott saw that to be an incumbent democrat governor in this cycle he needed a partner and so he came to me pretty early on in the summer of 2017 so i was a candidate for the u.s senate at the uh -huh. time and it's like a traveling circus these campaigns right you all go to the same place <laughs> you all see each other uh -huh. you share cabs you share you grab a beer after a campaign event because you're all staying in a hotel at the same hotel. And so we got to know each other. We became friends. And at a certain point, Scott said to me, you know, if you'd ever do it, I think you'd be an outstanding lieutenant governor candidate. And I'd love to run with you because I think I need a teammate. Um, and I just think it's something we could do. I think we could win a primary together. I think we win the general election together. And I, I politely said, you know, I really appreciate it, but yeah. no, no thanks. Um, right. I, um, I'm enjoying running for the Senate. It's a great experience. This is the job I love. This is what I want to do. These are the issues I care about. And as the summer went on, we had more and more discussions about it. Uh, and then there was an intervening force. Like I think you know, anyone who follows Pennsylvania politics will know that the president, President Trump, uh, expressed a pretty early uh, interest in, in Congressman Barletta running for the seat. And as that went along, um, and as Lou entered the race with the president's support, uh, I'm a party guy, right? I I'm a local committeeman. I've been a Montgomery County committeeman for f 15 years now. Uh -huh. uh, I support the party. I support candidates. And mm -hmm. so I was not going to spend a lot of time uh, running against the president. And, uh, and if the party expressed an, a wish, I was going to respect that wish. And so I was pretty much ready to just say, okay, well, maybe not my time. Mm -hmm. um, but Scott said, you know, I really, really want you to do this. And, and here's why. And this is a true credit to Scott Wagner. Scott said, here's what I'm good at. Here's what I'm not good at. You compliment my weaknesses, my shortcomings. These are his words. Mm. Very hard for any man to admit his shortcomings. Right. <laughs> Extremely yeah. hard for politicians sure. or elected officials or, right. or business uh, executives to admit their own shortcomings. Uh, and Scott, Scott said that, and it was so sincere and so thoughtful that we really at that point got, got down to... to so, uh, so talk about that. What, what do you see that Scott Wagner's strengths are and then yours... Um, because uh, it, you, you have taken a different approach, so, sort of what you did in, at Emory University, yeah. right? Uh, um, this hadn't been done before where two candidates come together before the primary because, uh, as our listeners know, uh, they're elected independently and then joined for the general election. Uh, you guys decided we're going to team up. And then, of course, even some others uh, did the same thing. Uh, right. uh, Mango and, and, um, and Diana. And yes, uh, Vaughn did that same thing. Um, but uh, what are the strengths that you guys bring as a package? Um, and uh, I think that that's certainly there's a, a package on the other side yeah. uh, as well, which has um, maybe we'll talk a little bit about them. But uh, <laughs> what, how do you how do you, uh, um, you know, 
put the, the, the strengths category for both of you guys. Well, so the final decision, uh, we, Cheryl and I had dinner with the Wagners. That, I, Cheryl was my absolute yeah. go-to. What do you think? I really I trust her judgment implicitly. She's a great judge of character and people. And we came home from dinner with the Wagners, and Cheryl said to me, you got you to gotta do this. <laughs> you guys will be a great team. I can see it. She's uh-huh. like, I think you guys will be a great team. And we have been. I mean, we started. So on November 9th of 2017, I suspended my campaign for the Senate and joined the Wagner team as the lieutenant governor candidate. As you said, never been, as you acknowledge, never been yeah. done before yeah. in Pennsylvania politics. And we got a lot of positive press and we got a lot of negative press. Sure. People saying, well, I don't know what they think they're doing. Yeah. Haven't they read the Constitution? And, and, and. Now, yeah. obviously, on May 15th, we both enjoyed a, a pretty resounding victory. And so we think the strategy, part one of the strategy was effective. Scott. Scott is the hardest working, most sincere, most authentic, most vulnerable. Like he, he puts himself out there uh, without any, he's in it for the right reason and he's in it to, uh, in this race. Uh, and he puts himself, all of himself into moving Pennsylvania forward. All he cares about is growing the economy, making Pennsylvania more prosperous, giving entrepreneurs and business people and young people wanting to start a family and a business, senior citizens who are who don't want to lose their home to high property taxes, and everybody in between, his passion is for growing Pennsylvania, making Pennsylvania a place where our children and our grandchildren choose to live. That's what drives him every day. Mm -hmm. So that's an enormous strength. And he has a force of personality and a magnetism. I saw this at all the campaign events over the, when I was still in the Senate. You know, we'd all finish and nobody would come talk to me. Yeah. I mean, or two people would come <laughs> talk to me. And Scott had crowds around him. People, he just has a magnetism. So that's a huge strength. But he would say, and these are his words, I mean, you know, not mine, uh, his weaknesses when we talked about it. He said, look, I'm not going to communicate as well as you do, meaning about me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to dig as deeply into the policy issues as you, because you love it. You're digging into policy. He said, so I need you to come in and, and, and communicate. You can, Jeff is saying mm-hmm. to me, Jeff, you can communicate clearly, effectively. Uh, Look, you can, it's like a, a CEO is not an operations guy, right? right. Uh, that's why you have a CEO and a COO. Yes. Is that, would you uh, kind of describe that's uh, how a relationship is? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a trusted advisor. Yeah. I'm a trusted advisor who he knows. He knows I've read through all the policy briefs. I've quizzed everybody on the team. And when I'm giving him a recommendation, I present it clearly, thoughtfully, and it's with a real thorough analysis, mm-hmm. right? At the heart of it, I am a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, <laughs> and so I, I, do, I know how to do that. And uh, he trusts me to provide that, that uh, analysis and that recommendation. Also, I think more importantly, he trusts me to go out and communicate uh, our message and our mission and, our, and what we need and what we're hoping to accomplish to the voters here in Pennsylvania. So he's really, he's charged me principally with communications and with on the campaign with communications and with policy as we will talk later i'm sure into governing uh, i'll be focused principally on education and on economic growth so is that part of the plan is that uh, you would uh, help on the policy agenda side because uh, we know that the current relationship between the governor and lieutenant governor um well there is none uh right. and essentially he just uh, well presides over the senate um i guess if we had an emergency hopefully we never do uh, he'd oversee that. But other than that, um, I, I think um, well, we've, we've seen uh, them together very infrequently, uh, and we certainly have seen the, um, the 
cold relationship that's existed there even in the media um but uh, so you even see not just pairing up before the primary but governing that uh, it would still be this uh, team approach absolutely absolutely and scott you asked me before like why did i make the switch I, i really had no interest in being lieutenant governor under the way that that role has traditionally been exercised. And that's no disrespect to any of the fine lieutenant governors who've come uh, before. I mean, Lieutenant Governor Cawley has been a trusted advisor and friend and an excellent, uh, he's just a terrific person in addition to being a trusted advisor Mm -hmm. and someone who's given a lot of his time to me. Uh, I think of Governor Schweiker uh, and and the role he played uh, in the Ridge administration. So that's not to take anything away. It's just not something that I was particularly interested in, but Scott needed a partner. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wanted a partner. And so my role will be, I will have a real seat at the table and a real leadership role across a broad portfolio in the administration, which is something that, you know, when, when you phrase it like that, the Senate is in Washington, obviously, Senate, U.S. Senate is in Washington, and you're one of 100. The opportunity to work side by side with such a disruptor and such an innovator and someone who is not afraid of challenging the status quo, like Scott Wagner, that's a once in a career opportunity. And that was, I couldn't, I really ultimately couldn't turn that down. So here we are a couple of months out uh, from November 6. Uh, Let's say you win November uh, 6. November 7, uh, you got to start, all right, we're going to have to govern. Uh, What does a Wagner-Bartos administration put what are the priorities uh, for you guys coming into office in January of 2019? What should the voters expect uh, that you would pursue? Or, you know, they always have these, what, 100 days. All right. Right. What, what, do you, what do you lay out for the people of Pennsylvania? Here's the direction we're headed in. And even contrast that with where Governor Wolf has, uh, well, uh, stagnated us, uh, for lack of a better description. Yeah, so we have a booming national economy. And this, there's no surprise here. I mean, you, your listeners know this. You've had great guests on who talk about the, the, the power of unleashing animal spirits and just <laughs> what tax cuts and, and deregulation, uh, s- sensible deregulation, right? The, the, the President Trump has been able to, and his administration have been able to achieve 22, eliminating 22 regulations for every new regulation that has come on the books or been promulgated and, uh, and cert, you know, put in the CFR uh, since the Trump administration started in January 2017. I think the voters of Pennsylvania are screaming out. And certainly even state employees are screaming out for leadership, and they're screaming out for somebody, a team, to come in and just unlock Pennsylvania's potential. I'm sure you would agree with the oh, statement, yes. which is government doesn't create jobs, yeah. but it sure as heck can destroy them. And we see that with Governor Wolf's leadership. And it's really, just a, it's really just a different governing philosophy. I mean, Governor Wolf believes in taxes. He believes in regulation. He believes in incremental, step-by-step, methodical, very professorial. Uh, we, are, we look at Pennsylvania and say all we have to do is just get government off the, the foot of government, off the throats of ordinary Pennsylvanians, and we'll unleash prosperity here in Pennsylvania. We know this because we are right now, Matt, I don't know if you know the stat, we rank in terms of unemployment behind every one of our neighbors, save West Virginia. Yeah. So we're fifth out of six. Wallet Hub and other uh, rankings out there have us as the fifth worst place, worst place to start a business, the tenth worst place uh, in terms of economic growth. Or so, or, what are those things that uh, you would pursue right away that you think would reverse that and put uh, you know an open for business right. sign on our borders and start attracting job creators here, keeping our young people. 
um, and to do so without having to throw a bunch of taxpayer money at right. it. Because that's, that's been the only way that uh, Governor Wolf is trying to, you know, throw money at, at uh, various uh, companies to try to keep them here. It's insane, actually, when you think yeah. about it. You have high taxes and then, and then have giveaways. Yeah. Just lower the rates. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's sort of, a, oh, my gosh, that really works. Yeah. I mean, people are— But politicians don't get the, uh, you know, the photo opportunities what? of cutting ribbons for the— and money they've doled out to companies opening new th- the facilities. So hold me accountable yeah. to this. Yeah. Scott and I could care less about the accolades. Yeah. We just we want Pennsylvania to be a place where our children and grandchildren can choose choose to live and can grow and prosper. That's what we want. So it's it's really simple actually. We need to do at Pennsylvania what's been done at the federal level over the last 17 months. We need to have deregulation. Businesses need certainty. They need to know that when they submit a permit to DEP or any of the other state agencies that they're going to get reviewed in the ordinary course. They may get rejected. They mm-hmm. may get approved, mm-hmm. but it's not going to sit there for 10 months. Yeah. Because right now, Ohio is cleaning our clock when they can, they can review and issue a permit in 30 days or less, and we're nine months to a year, whether it's an oil and gas permit, whether it's a well permit, whether you, you name the permit that goes through DEP, uh, labor and industry, uh, our workers' comp system. I mean, all of these chokes on business are... We're the second highest corporate tax right now. I mean, New Jersey. We're effectively the highest. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But, but Governor Murphy yeah. just had a big oh, bill. That's right. right. Yeah, so we're, we're, we're effectively. So we got that going for us. Right, we're so. beating New Jersey. But by the way, we're not beating New <laughs> yeah, Jersey because right. we're losing to New Jersey in all these rankings. It's, you have to work really hard yeah. to lose to New Jersey. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they may have a geographic, slight geographic advantage, but uh, that's, it's common sense reforms. We need a lower corporate tax rate. We need to make Pennsylvania a place. Look, we're not. We're not rolling over and letting businesses just run the state. But right now, why would you choose to, if you're a business person, why would you choose to locate your business here or grow here when you can go to a much more friendly state in Ohio? Well, we have uh, certainly lots of members at uh, Commonwealth Partners uh, have operations in other states, and that's the regular complaint is, uh, look, we're not opposed to regulations and making sure we comply with the law. The problem is is that we can't get approval for permits or for the ability to do the very same operation I do in a neighboring state uh, um, at, in a reasonable time, and that this, we know, time is money yep. uh, when it comes to these investments. So- um, well, yeah. So what about like education? Uh, uh, obviously, uh, we got some fantastic public schools around the state, and then we've got some that are just failing to educate our kids. Uh, and we know that when we fail in our, uh, you know, our, our schools, uh, that's a strong common denominator amongst people trapped in our welfare systems, which is simply our single largest expense, uh, or in our correction system. So, I mean, we have to figure out how to make sure we deliver a better education to particularly uh, uh, kids that desperately need it or are going to become wards of the state in some form or another. So it, it's the number one issue. Look, so jobs, taxes, and education. Mm-hmm. We talk every day on the campaign trail about a Wagner-Bartos administration will deliver better jobs, lower taxes, and more money in the classroom. So that's, those are the, the bullets. Now let's dig deeper on all that. Education sits at the, at really at the center of all of the good and also all of the ills that affect our people and our society, right? And you said it just now. If, you, if you're born right now, this is the civil rights issue of our time. If you're born in a particular zip code, you can go to a good school. You'll be talking about trades. You'll be talking about college. You'll be talking about a professional life or a, or a, a life that allows you to live a decent middle-class life or better. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and, and kids understand how important it is to go to college and, and or to a trade school, start a life, start their life. Mm-hmm. But in other schools uh, where you're born into a particular zip code, it's almost like you're sentenced to a life of despair. Yeah, of either to welfare or corrections, yep. right? I mean, that's, unfortunately, those tend to be the strongest common denominator in those two institutions, if you will. Uh, it's a lack of a good education. And we can fix this. We've seen it in states like Indiana, in states like, uh, obviously, Wisconsin, which led the nation uh, on this school reform. And, and look, I, there's folks on the left who are bought and paid for by the teachers union. Mm-hmm. And we have to work really hard as conservatives to differentiate our policies and how they impact kids and teachers and parents as opposed to the union leadership. Right. We, we love good teachers. You bet. All of we us. We want to pay them more. We do. <laughs> and all of us are the product. All of us are the product of good teachers. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm saying if you've been successful, yeah. if you've made your way in life, you, you had the help of a great teacher or two or five or ten, or in my case, dozens along the way, mentors mm-hmm. and teachers. Poor children in the wrong zip codes, and I'm saying wrong zip codes meaning they just it was, they lost the lottery uh, in terms of uh, where they were born and the opportunities available to their parents. We can fix that. It's been well, fixed. And, and Tom Wolf says, "Well, we just need more money." You know, he of course ran on the myth of a billion dollar cut. Wow. Of course, that was money that stopped coming from from uh, the Obama administration. The stimulus, yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, they argue, look, we're just we're underfunding our schools. We just need more money into these schools that are underperforming. How, how do you guys uh, handle that? Uh, um, well, so Governor Wolf has a lot of audacity on this issue. Um, he says he restored, his administration restored a billion dollars of, of the phantom cuts, as I call right. them. Well, the governor didn't sign three of the four budgets uh, in his term so far. He just signed this year. And he mm-hmm. signed a budget that put $110 million more funding into education. But he claims credit for the allocation of funds in budgets that he never signed. Yeah. Now, you can't claim credit <laughs> if you're not signing the budget, right? That's kind of a principal job of the governor. Like and, it's, and really not involved even in those. No, uh, it's, 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 it's really, it's the same way, Matt. He claimed credit under his watch for no, ta- no, no increase in the sales tax or the income tax. <laughs> despite but he, trying like the Despite pushing chance. for yeah, the largest right. tax increase in Pennsylvania history. Yeah. So we, look, we, uh, we know where the money needs to go. Now, we're, we don't, we're not clear. Of, we, are, we don't have the, we've not cornered the market on good ideas. And so we're going to be working with education reformers. We have, you know this, we have so many talented, smart, capable, passionate education reformers here in the Commonwealth who are, who all they care about is delivering a higher quality education at a predictable cost uh, that, that allows us to educate more children in a way that is not just stuffing money into a failed pension system. Mm-hmm. I mean, the governor even if we give him credit for the billion dollars, which we should not, of restoring that money all went in to an underfunded pension system, right. all of it. Which, of course, he campaigned that there was no pension crisis, vetoed uh, real pension reform, and then was forced to sign a, a you know, a, a, a lesser measure, if you will, something that certainly moved us in the right direction, uh, but continues to side with the special interests that maintain uh, retirement benefits. Uh, and of course, nobody's looking to take away earned benefits, but benefits that in the future are simply unsustainable. I mean, I don't know if uh, I don't know if we're going to be able to keep those promises if we don't uh, change 
the direction of our of our state when it comes to this. So I think it's really disingenuous to make promises that uh, I think he's smart enough to know and, and understands math. We can't keep them. I mean, these are we are on a trajectory that is simply unsustainable. And it's and it's and it is just math. Yeah. Right. Like right. math doesn't yeah. lie. Yeah. <laughs> At the end of the day, it's math. Yeah. The we don't have enough young workers coming up to replace the retirees. We don't have enough people paying into various systems that would allow us to at least keep these, system, these pension systems and programs at the municipal level and, at the, and certainly at the state level with SIRS and PSIRS. At some point, the music's going to stop. And if we haven't brought real economic growth, so the promise that Scott and I are making to the voters, we're going to bring economic growth, prosperity back to Pennsylvania. And I'll tell you how like, Pennsylvania has all the ingredients. We have a great location. I'm a real estate guy. We have a great location. We have hardworking women and men eager and in places like my hometown of Reading, desperate for opportunity. Mm-hmm. We have g- unbelievable natural resources, the God-given, unbelievable natural resources across the Commonwealth, not just coal and oil and gas, but also farmland and timberland and, and great uh, infrastructure. And, and so we, we have all that. Uh, and then we have world-leading institutions of higher learning. We should be growing at a rate that rivals Texas, and we're and unfortunately we're we're losing to New Jersey. Yeah. We're going to send a congressional uh, seat down to Texas in yes. the next go around because we're not maximizing uh, these opportunities. Right. But it's all it takes. I, I hate to make it sound so simple, but all it takes is leadership. Yeah. If we come in and we put in meaningful regulatory reform and hard nosed regulatory reform that is going to go against what lobbyists want, but we're going to get it done, uh, and we unlock businesses' potential and let them free up and, and get moving again and make investments. If we put some regularity around the permitting process and, under, and predictability for businesses, we bring tax reform uh, and we start to get into, uh, I mean, Scott talks all the time about zero-based budgeting. It's just really a simple concept, which is we're going to make the departments and the agencies prove out their budgets every year and start from zero and build it back up so we don't fall into this morass, this malaise that government falls into, which is uh, we give you a 2% increase from your budget last year. You asked for 4%. We're going to give you 2%. That's a cut. We yeah, cut right, 2%. Right. Like that's, <laughs> it's almost Kafka-esque in terms of when you read that stuff. And so those simple reforms, those sim- that simple focus on those key issues uh, drives Pennsylvania out of, its, out of its slumber and gets us moving in. Look, we're growing, Matt, what are we, a 4.1% GDP here in the, in nationally? Nationally, correct. That's with regulatory reform and tax reform. And that's the kind of growth Pennsylvania Pennsylvania desperately needs. So, uh, uh, Jeff, as uh, you go forward and you're running across the state, uh, is your message resonating? Are you feeling that uh, people understand um, uh, the differences between uh, Wagner Bartos and, and Wolf Fetterman? So this has been the professional experience of a lifetime. And in many respects, the personal experience of a lifetime. I have, and we've talked about this before, I love having this opportunity. I'm I'm daily, I'm grateful for being where I am and beginning to meet so many interesting Pennsylvanians. I was asked at a, an event last week, what's the number one thing that you've seen over the last 18 months that surprised you? Surprised you? Like what sticks out most? That's a tough question. But I had an immediate answer, which is I have visited so many amazing businesses, small businesses to medium to large, in towns that most people have never heard of unless you live close by or, or have a family member living there. You wouldn't know these businesses are even there. 
and now having traveled to all corners of the Commonwealth, almost all, not quite at 67, but almost all of the counties, um, I have a really good sense of what's resonating with people um, because I'm connecting with them every day. And I would say the people who are paying attention, and obviously as we get in past Labor Day, more people will be paying attention. The message of, of prosperity, reform, uh, energy, a governor that cares. I mean, Scott's showing up. That's the number one thing. He's done 480 plus events. He'll be, he'll be at 500 events before August is out for sure since January 1st. Hmm. I was at the Warren County Fair last uh, earlier this week, uh, and I ran into a Democrat. And the Democrat said, well, I can't vote for you. I'm a Democrat. And I said, well, has Governor Wolf been to the fair? Well, no, not that I know of. I said, have you ever met him? He said, well, no, as a matter of fact, no. I said, well, then you should give me and Scott a chance. I'm like, we're here. Like, I came to the fair. Mm-hmm. That's worth something. He goes, you know, that's a good point. That's a good point. And by the way, those conversations happen every day. Mm-hmm. We need to bring the Republicans home. We need to make sure they get out and vote. And there are plenty of independents and conservative Democrats who are absolutely horrified by this march towards socialism that they're seeing from the far left of the Democrat Party. Those voters are going to come home uh, in, in November as well. And we're going to have, I don't even call it a surprise victory. It's a, it's a natural victory for what we saw in 2016. This is just the next step. And we're going to see that happen Uh, I'm very confident in that. Well, I wish you well, and I appreciate your taking time out to join me here on Brews and Views. This is great. It's uh, it's great to catch up with you. I really appreciate your listeners tuning in, and uh, thanks for the opportunity. Thanks, Jeff. You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners, and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E.